Good morning. Thanks again for being with us this morning. We pray that this service is a blessing to you and your walk with the Lord. If you are here and you do not know Jesus, our goal today is that you would see him from the text, that you would hear him through his word and come to know him in a saving way. Well, today is the 4th of July, as Josh mentioned, and kind of a good chance for us to reflect on the goodness of God in our past. This is year 245 that we are entering as a nation, and what a testament to God's goodness. And at the same time, we recognize that this is the will of God that this country exists. It's the will of God that any country exists. And so we celebrate not only our freedom from old King George, but we celebrate the freedom that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is the greatest freedom that we can have. Romans chapter 8 starts the chapter by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Praise God that he has done this for us. Well, today we are continuing in our summer series of the Psalms. We come to Psalm 4 this morning, and so if you haven't, I invite you to turn there, and we will read Psalm 4 together and pray and begin our time of worship in the Word this morning. So Psalm chapter 4, we'll start at the beginning. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face on us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's pray. Father, this morning we want your word and your truth to stand firm. The admonition that David gives to these men in this chapter, put your trust in the Lord, is my call this morning to put our trust in you and not in ourselves because you alone, O Lord, are the one who is our shield and defender. So Father, as we take a few minutes now and look at this text, I pray that your word would have its full effect, that my heart and the heart of those here would be softened and receptive, and open to correction, open to an adjustment in the way that we live our life. As believers, our goal ought to be to honor you in the way that we live. And for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would call them this morning, call them through this text, to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this place that you've provided for us to meet. Thank you for all of your blessings to this church. Would we be found faithful stewards of your good gifts? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Last week when we looked at chapter 3, we saw David 
crying out to the Lord because of the situation that he was in with his son Absalom. And if you missed that, you can certainly hear it on the website. And now today in chapter 4, we see a similar situation of David crying to the Lord for relief, for help, and yet we don't get the exact situation, although I think there's some pointers that we'll see in the text as far as what's going on in this context. So as we begin, just a word about the structure and how it might help you see this. In verse 1, David is talking, speaking, addressing the Lord. In verses 2 through 6, this is him talking to these men, these one who's seeking after lies. And then in verses 7 and 8, he's back addressing the Lord. So you can kind of keep that in your mind as we move through this text together. So in verse 1, we see then David's petition, his request. And when we look at the opening line, it might sound kind of demanding. Answer me. You ever talk to someone in a conversation or like at work and you're trying to get their attention, they're just not paying attention and you ask the same thing over and over and finally say, hey, answer me, what, what's going on? That isn't what's going on here in this text. This is a petition, a request, a plea for God's help. And I think that's how we should read it. Answer me, O God <clears throat> of my righteousness. Now David, this is really important to note, David does not approach God based on his own merit. He does not say, hear me, O Lord, because I am righteous. He says, hear me, O God of my righteousness. What's the difference between those two ways of saying it? Both are saying kind of the same thing. They're communicating that David is righteous or at least possesses righteousness. He speaks in personal possessive language, my righteousness. Well, I think the difference in the way that David says it versus how he may have said it is credit. Who is responsible for David's righteousness? Not David, but the Lord, the God of righteousness. He approaches God not based on what he's done. He doesn't come to God and say, help me God because I was really good this week and I really need your help. He calls to God based on the track record of God's faithfulness in his own life and what he has read about in the law of the Lord. Look at the next line. This demonstrates so clearly that this is what's going on, that David is approaching God based on God's attributes, based on God's faithfulness, not in his own strength. David says, You have given me relief when I was in distress. You have given me when I was in distress. These are past tense actions. David approaches God with this request based on God's record of faithfulness to David. You've given me relief in the past, God. Do it again. And I just want to interject here that this is not presumption. This isn't presuming upon God to say, God, you have acted faithfully in the past. I am trusting you to act faithfully again in accordance with your character. That isn't presumption with God because the faithfulness of God is who he is. And when we call out to him and say, God, do the things that you have promised to do, it is not presumptuous. It is expectant faith. Help me, oh God. You've done it before. Do it again. God's not going to hear that and go, who do you think you are? 
He's going to say, yes, that's who I am. And God loves to demonstrate his attributes to us. So don't read this and think, this is really presumptuous of David to just assume because it happened once, it's going to happen again. It's not the way it is with God. He never runs out of his supply. He never diminishes his reserve of faithfulness so that he says, well, I know that happened in the past, but you know what? I'm not doing it again. That is not our God. Our God is endless in his supply of grace and mercy and faithfulness to us. And I was thinking about this verse And one of the things, this is not the main point here, but one of the things I was thinking about is when we sin, when we mess up, which we all do daily, how are we to handle coming to God? Because you've you've transgressed, you've gone beyond the limits that God has set for his people, you've sinned, and so you're in this state and you're probably thinking, if you're like me, I feel gross, I feel dirty, how can I come to God in this condition? What do you do when you're in that situation? You remember the Psalms. And you remember David's example that he, he does not cry out to God because he's cleaned his life up and he's good enough to approach God. He cries out to God because of the track record of God's faithfulness to him. And we need to remember that. Don't let your sin and your guilt keep you from coming to God. His supply of mercy is endless towards us as his children. Now the word gracious in verse 1, other places in the Psalms is translated also as merciful. So why in this context do you think the translators went with gracious rather than merciful? I think it's because this is a petition, this is a request. See, mercy is withholding something that we deserve, usually a punishment or a consequence. Grace is giving something to us that we do not deserve. And so in this context, for David to say, be gracious to me, hear my prayer, it is fitting because he is asking God to do something. He's asking God to give him something, namely relief from his distress. Now this distress could have been emotional or relational or whatever it was, we don't know exactly, but in the following verses I think we get a little bit of a clue. Look at verse 2. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? This word men here should probably say men of rank, men of influence. These are powerful people in positions of authority, landowners who held prominent positions within the kingdom. They were likely angry with the king for one reason or another and were slandering him, trying to degrade him or discredit David. Many commentators think that this psalm has the context of a drought, which was really common in Israel. And so they're probably upset at the way the king, David, has handled the administration of this crisis, this famine perhaps, when the crops weren't producing. And this explanation is going to make more sense, especially when we get to verses 6 and 7, but we'll get there in a minute. Now David contrasts, and we see that in the word but, starting in verse 3. But, I, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. While these men may have gathered support, may it have been the popular thing to get together and whine about the decisions of the king, 
David points out that God operates differently. He has set apart a people for himself. This would be like the blessed man from Psalm 1 a few weeks ago that does not engage with the foolishness. These, these men, these people who God has set apart now in contrast, don't engage with the culture around them in a foolish way. Rather, they have been set apart for God and therefore conduct themselves in a way that is worthy of their call. And I love David's confidence in God's abilities to hear and answer prayer. Look what he says, the Lord hears when I call to him. And this is one of the things that I think the Psalms do such a good job of, is drawing out these characteristics of God, that he is a refuge for his people. He hears us, he wants us to come and draw near to him. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my rock, my God in whom I trust. God is that for his people. Do you know that? Do you know that you can come to God, no matter the condition of your heart, no matter what your past is, no matter what you have sinned with earlier in the day, you can come to God. He is a refuge. He will hear you when you call to him. What an encouragement. And this is what the Psalms tell us. Now in verses 4 to 5, David gives five points of exhortation to these men who are trying to shame him and destroy his confidence in God's ability to act on his behalf. We see these five things in verses 4 and 5. He says, be angry and don't sin. Ponder in your hearts. Be silent. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. So let's look at each of those just really briefly. In most of our Bibles, it does use the word angry. And the Apostle Paul is going to pick up on that in Ephesians 4. Lord willing, when we come back to this in the fall, to Ephesians, we'll see this. But in most of our Bibles, it uses the word angry, and some of the translations might say troubled or agitated. When we think of anger, we usually think of like this outburst, right? A, a kind of a relief valve blowing all the steam off. It's like this mm, anger, this aggression. But here, I think the word is probably better seen as, and this is how it's usually used in the Old Testament, troubled, or even to tremble. Uh, Van Germeren, one of the commentators that I use, translates that first line in verse 4 this way. He says, tremble with fear and stop sinning. Pretty direct, but I think I like that. <laughs> Do you remember Psalm 2? This is a couple weeks ago in verse 11. Uh, the psalmist says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. David knows the outcome of the wicked. For all the talk of what happens to the people who follow God and are obedient to him, he is not unaware of what the end of the wicked will be. He knows what's happening and he is warning them to turn, stop the foolishness. Stop your scheming. Stop your plotting. Don't pursue lies. Rather, humble yourself before the Lord. He tells them to ponder in their hearts. Reflect. Think about what you're doing and be wise. Be silent and wait for the Lord to speak rather than just moving ahead and trying in your own strength to come up with the solution to the problem. Wait and be silent for the Lord to speak. 
rather than expending energy on vain plotting, as chapter 2 said, these men should instead offer what David calls right sacrifices to the Lord. One of the things that's happening at this time in the nation of Israel is that depending on circumstances, people's trust in the Lord would kind of ebb and flow. Okay, and so when things got hard, they would be tempted to turn to the foreign gods of the nations around them because the nations did not have one God, they had many gods. So there was a God for this and a God for that and a God for the other thing. And so if this was true, that there was some kind of a drought or natural crisis thing happening, then the people of Israel who were turning away from God would have been tempted to go to other gods. Maybe a God of fertility or a God of abundance or a God of agriculture or whatever. And so David is saying, look, listen up. Rather than going to these other gods and offering ridiculous sacrifices to something that is not going to hear you, offer right sacrifices to God. Yahweh, the God of Israel. David warns against this and exhorts them. Not only to do the thing, right? Notice what he says here. He says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. This is the heart component. He's not just saying you need to do different ritual. You need to do different action. He's saying put your heart in it. Turn your heart towards the Lord. There's a way to go through the ritual of religion. Church attendance, Bible study, listening to the Bible, reading. There's a way to do that where your heart is totally cold and unreceptive. And there is a way by the help of the Spirit of God to have your heart changed and to hear the word afresh and to put your trust in the Lord. And that is what David is calling for. Now in verse 6, David repeats some of this insincere, mocking language that he has heard spoken. This verse should be heard as if these men who are pursuing lies, these are the kinds of things that they're taunting him with, the things that they're saying. They're saying, who's going to show us some good? David calls them to repentance, calls them to worship the Lord, offer right sacrifice, and these guys are saying, who's going to do us any good? Lift up your face on us, O Lord. That's dangerous. We saw in verse 2 how these men are trying to take David's honor and turn it into shame. And here we see in verse 6 an example of that. They are mocking God. They are calling into question God's ability to be faithful to what he has promised. Now different translations will have these quotation marks ending after the first phrase. I think the ESV gets it right by taking the whole thing in a quote Because this aligns with this attitude that was communicated in the text. That there is this agitation, this kind of poking to try to get David to break. And these men are calling into question David's faith in God. Now, verse 7 and 8, we change back from David addressing these men to addressing God. Verse 7, read this with me please. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You see, the thing about the ungodly person is that they are always trying to find satisfaction in something other than God. There's always a pursuit of stuff or things or relationships or whatever. And even 
when the worldly people seem to have everything. When those around David are in this position, he says the Lord has put more joy in his heart than they have. Even when the worldly seem to succeed, when their grain and their wine abound, maybe a modern translation would be when the portfolio is full and the pantry is stacked, David says it doesn't matter. My joy, my satisfaction is found in the Lord. This is such a wonderful picture of David's contentedness. Now David wasn't perfect, good grief, we know that from reading the Bible. But in certain places and at certain times, he models such wonderful things for us. And I think this contentedness that we see in verse 7 is so encouraging. And there's another Old Testament text that is very similar to this. And I want to have you turn there just so you can see with me. Go to the book of Habakkuk. It's about a half inch to the right in your Bible. If you hit Matthew, you've gone too far. Or you can just listen as I read. Habakkuk chapter 3. And go all the way down to the end of the chapter in verse 19. And it says the exact same thing that this psalm starts with. To the choir master with stringed instruments. So we know we're in a similar vein, even in the style or the presentation of what Habakkuk is saying. So keep in mind, as I'm going to read 17 through 19, and keep in mind what we're seeing here in verse 7 of Psalm 4. That David is saying, even when everything around me seems prosperous, even in times of want or need for me, my joy comes from the Lord, not from my circumstances. Okay, that's what David's saying. Keep that in mind. Listen to this. Habakkuk chapter 3, I'm going to read from verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This text from Habakkuk, just like Psalm 4, is showing us a picture of godly contentment. Satisfaction with what God has done. Even when others around are prospering and we seem to be in want, even if there is not the provision we would like or the abundance that we feel we might deserve, that doesn't change the faithfulness of God. Nor should it change our response to God's faithfulness. And I think it's really important to point out, maybe at this juncture, that our circumstances, the situations that we find ourselves in or put ourselves in, our circumstances do not dictate or control or limit the faithfulness of God. Why is it important to know that? Because when your situation is really crummy, we tend to doubt God's faithfulness as if He is unable to work in certain circumstances, which is a lie. The faithfulness of God is in no way dependent upon how good your life is going. Hear me on this. 
The faithfulness of God is not dependent upon your success, your comfort, your worldly satisfaction. It is dependent upon God himself because it's who he is. Situational happiness is fleeting and temporary. Joy that comes from the Lord is eternal for the Christian. So if you find yourself constantly spinning your wheels, stuck in a spot, and calling God's faithfulness into question, wait. Be patient and wait on the Lord. He has not forgotten you. There is nothing that can stop His faithfulness. There is no death, there is no life, there is no circumstance, tragedy, success, celebration, nothing changes the faithfulness of God because it's who He is. And if we could get that, if I could get that, what a difference it would make in my own life. If you look at your circumstances and you start to compare them, which we all do, but we shouldn't, you start to compare your circumstances to those around you and you think, well, man, if, if I just had more success or more possessions or more kids or more whatever, prominence, promotion at work, whatever, if you start to compare, you are going to have all the necessary ingredients for dissatisfaction. And God wants us to be satisfied in Him, not constantly clawing and striving for more worldly recognition. Riches, position, promotion, none of that stuff really satisfies. We know that. If you've lived enough life, you know. Even at your highest moment, that doesn't last. (laughs) God lasts. And his faithfulness lasts. And that's what David's trying to tell us here. So how does God do this? If we're, if we're saying, and if David is saying, only God can satisfy, how does he do this? Psalm 90, verse 14, says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. It is the love of God for his children, demonstrated through his provision and his kindness towards us, that will truly and ultimately satisfy the human heart. And of course, when we think about Love and demonstration, we should think Romans 5, that God demonstrates his love to us while we were still sinners. What happened? Christ died for us. The greatest act of love that God ever did was in the sacrifice of his own son. And so when we say, God, satisfy me with your love, we are saying, I want to be satisfied in Jesus and let the world go. Easier said than done, isn't it? Because I can touch the world. I can feel things around me. I can smell things. Sometimes that sense that we have for worldliness is so strong that we can't recognize the God who saved us. Which is why we need to always come back to his word. Always refresh ourselves. Always find our satisfaction in what God has done And it's kind of like eating right. The more you eat right, the less you want to eat bad. The more you eat bad, the more you just want to keep eating bad. If you stock your mind and your heart and your soul with the truth of the Bible, 
you'll start to desire it more. That's just the way that God works. So the call here is for us to find our satisfaction. God is able to give us more joy, more happiness, more contentment than anything that this world offers. Therefore, verse 8 in Psalm 4. And I actually think we could put a therefore in there between verse 7. Verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Therefore, in peace I will lay down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Just like we saw last week, there was some similar language with sleep and rest with David. David's ability to rest to trust the Lord with the outcome, to have confidence that the Lord alone is who protects him. This comes from the knowledge of what God has already done. It's the, past, it's the looking back to God's faithfulness. Listen to some of the ways he's talked. You have put joy in my heart. You have demonstrated this faithfulness. David knows that God has made promises to him. And because he knows God's words are true, he can leave that outcome to God. And sleep like a baby. What kind of a man is it that can say this? A man who knows the faithfulness of God. Well, maybe you don't have a lot of experience. Maybe you don't have the eyes to see back at what God has done. That's okay. Read the Bible. Look at the examples of how God has dealt with his people and preserved them and provided for them and led them and guided them and given them gifts in the form of his son. Notice in this last line now, David's confidence is in the Lord alone. You alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I think oftentimes we communicate Christian things because we know we're supposed to. Yes, I trust in the Lord. But what that often ends up meaning is I trust in the Lord and a little bit of my effort. Yep, I trust in the Lord and good planning. We need to think, right? We need to plan ahead. That's not trust. That's self-reliance with a little Jesus sprinkled on top and it won't work. David says, you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So I think the question to ask is does your conduct match your confession. If you are saying with your mouth, I trust the Lord, would anyone be able to look at your life and say, yeah, they they trust the Lord? Or would they look at it and say, man, they've really worked for it? Now, trusting in the Lord doesn't mean that you sit on your hands, (laughs) right? We read the rest of the Bible and we see that trust in the Lord motivates us to live a life of godliness, and sanctification, and the pursuit of being like Jesus. But trusting in the Lord means turning away from yourself, turning away from your own resources. The same God that David cried out to, the same God that answered him, is the God that we cry out to, the God that answers us. So when we read the Psalms and we see these wonderful things and we see confidence in the psalmist and we see answers and we see all these things, we need to know that that wasn't just something 3,000 years ago. 
that we can kind of look at and go, well, that's, that's nice, but I don't know how it applies to me. <clears throat> Let me ask you something. Does God ever change? Does God ever change? No. And the way that his faithfulness was demonstrated here is the same faithfulness that he's promised to his children here. So ask yourself this week, and even today, does my conduct match my confession? Does the way I live my life line up with what I profess with my mouth? Come back to the Psalms. See these wonderful examples of how God has not only promised but fulfilled those promises to his people and trust in him alone. The God of our righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I confess to you that I so often lean on my own understanding. I so often neglect to put total trust and confidence in you. And I'm sorry for that. I pray, Lord, that we would see this encouragement from your word that you are able to give us joy beyond anything we could accomplish here on earth. You are able to provide for all the things that we need and you alone are the one in whom we are to put our trust. So God, would you do that here? Would you strengthen our faith? Help us, Lord, to trust in you because you're the only one worthy of putting our trust in. And I pray for us as a church, Lord, that our conduct, the way that we live our lives, would line up with our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Only you can do this through the work of your Holy Spirit, so please, God, do this. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.